0: Let's pray. Father, we love clarity. We love when small things become magnified and become clear. Lord, when you get a new pair of glasses or contacts and we see better. We thank you, Lord, for everything that helps us see you, that magnifies you. Lord, you're unchanging. It's just our our eyesight Misses you So thank you Lord through The gathering of believers and The beauty of music Strings and keys and Vocal chords Today Even now more than 23 minutes ago In our minds You're larger More beautiful more glorious We're more compelled more drawn to you Lord right now even Temptation is weakened because you're so much more glorious. We thank you, Lord, that you have been magnified today. We want to continue that. Please help me. Don't let me diminish the sight of you. Let me magnify the enjoyment of you through through these words that have come from your word. Father, we thank you for all the fatherly influences in our life that have caused you to be seen as great and glorious. It might have been through a biological father We're we say thank you, Dad. Thank you. Lord, but it might have been a, just a, a man who took the time to mentor us, disciple us, fathered us in the faith. Thank you for that guy. Those men that pointed us to the greatest reality of all that there is in heaven a sovereign king, holy, just God who wants to be our Father, everlasting Father. Thank you, God, that I can, through Christ, pull up at the table. Be invited to sit and eat with my heavenly Father. Sins forgiven. Guilt already judged. I'm invited. I'm accepted to be with you, Father. As is the same with anybody here who would believe in Christ. Would fall upon Christ. Please, today, God, call someone who does not know you as their father. Father. To come into your kingdom, come to your house, to come to your throne, to your table, and say, be my Father. Christ, be my brother, be my Savior. God, be my Father. It is in the name of Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, that we thank you, Father. Amen. Amen. Uh, in her book, The Mark of a Man, Elizabeth Elliot, Uh, the wife of slain missionary Jim Elliott, says the world cries for men who are strong, strong in conviction, strong to lead, strong to stand, and strong to suffer. I don't know of a greater need in the world than in this country than men who know God. Not men who know about God, but men who know His voice. They read His Word And they walk away from that experience trembling with respect and worshiping with joy. Whenever culture breaks down, you can always trace it back to one thing in one place. And that is that men have abandoned their post. Spiritual war has become too great for them, too intense for them. So when they're Comfort was threatened. They leave. They depart the mission of God and choose the mission of the world and walk uh, with the rhythm of the world and culture. So as men goes, so culture goes. A nation cannot prosper until the hearts of its men are restored to God. Men who live with one passion, and that is to see the name of God honored. Men who love the cross of Jesus Christ and demonstrate that love through obedience. Men who are guided by the scripture instead of the voice of culture. Men who are unafraid to speak truth when the world says be quiet. And they're not confused about what God has said. And they're not vague when it's their turn to talk. They're like the men of Isaacar who know the times. And they stand. The title of our message today is act like a man. It comes from 1 Corinthians 16, 13, and 14. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be men of courage. Be strong and do everything in, in love. There are hundreds, I guess thousands of books written about what is it to be a man and you're welcome to read all of them. But if you want to take a shortcut, I would point you to 1 Corinthians 16, 13, and 14. It's my favorite definition in the Bible of biblical manhood. It's amazing. It's <clears throat> my outline is right there. You won't see me being creative at all today with trying to say anything different. That's the outline. Five exhortations <clears throat> in Greek and in English. Four of them sound like the shot of a rifle. They have a military sound. And then one sounds unmilitary like at the end. Oh, and after you've done everything, do it all in love. It's unbelievable combination. So I want to look at the five charges today. The first one is be on your guard. From the Greek word, uh, Gregoreo, we get our family name Gregory from that, if that's your name. It's a cool name. It means to be alert. Jesus used that phrase, Gregoreo, stay alert, be on your guard, 22 times. In his three-year teaching with the disciples and the crowds, he always knew that something was up. You needed to be alert to that. These are some of the ways he told his disciples to be alert. Be alert for those who distort the Bible. Mark 12, 38. Be alert for those who try to deceive you. They lie to you. Mark thirteen five. Be alert for coming temptation, Mark 14, 38. Be alert for spiritual apathy, Matthew 24, 42. One of my favorites is not really from the mouth of Christ, but I'm sure that's where he first heard it. It was the apostle Peter years later toward the end of the New Testament, after having gotten his own dose of reality, decided to offer this warning to stay alert. 1 Peter 5, 8, be alert your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour so it doesn't really matter whether the call to be alert comes from Peter Paul or Jesus himself it's all the same idea never downplay evil be alert Hell is never quiet. Demons always work three shifts. Satan never stops plotting your downfall. That's what he's doing right now while you worship. He's always planning your next temptation. So right now, there's either a hook in front of you that is very attractive, that sin, that or you don't see it yet. He's working on new bait that you've never encountered before that will be quite challenging but this is really a call to realize of how much is at stake this is why we are alert satan is playing for keeps so stop living as if your comfortable life means that all is well with the world because all is not well with the world most is not well with the world this is what drives a father to pray for his children with intensity. He knows this force is coming after his kids to destroy them, to shame them, to bring pain into their life. So a father, in a bunch of different ways, spends his life praying for Teaching, instructing, and even on those certain times, warning. I remember, I just got a text from my my wife and my daughter. They're not at the service today. Uh, Our grandson woke up a a little sick, so I always have more liberty to talk about them when they're not here. So I remember driving down to Columbia when Anna was at college. Just tell her. Just took her out to eat and say, what you're doing is dangerous. What you're doing is dangerous. It's what dads do. They warn. Our times are evil, dangerous, and dads know that. So they never stop warning, never stop praying. It's almost like if you were to think about a platoon that's you know sleeping at night and a sentry is on duty, Is it okay if on any night for that sentry to ever go to sleep while he's on duty? No, because that might be the night of the attack. Or if you travel through airports, especially internationally, you go through London, Heathrow, Terminal Number 4, millions of guests and businessmen going through that, and they x-ray every bag, and I just want to ask you, which bag would you say is okay if they missed And what do they say in that business? It's like you only have to be wrong once. That's what men think about. It's what fathers think about. I I need to take all these opportunities to pray. I don't need to miss that opportunity to encourage and sometimes warn. Keeping watch means that you never let your guard down. Number two, after we see be on your guard, number two is stand firm in the faith. If you do not believe that the only thing that Satan wants in your life is shame and pain, that's all he wants, it's the only thing he does, kill, steal, and destroy. If you do not believe the only thing he wants for you is shame and pain, you don't understand him, you don't believe in him, and therefore you are not going to be standing firm when he comes. And the very fact that we're commanded to stand firm means it's hard to stand firm. That's what commands are in the Bible. It's it's not naturally something you'd say, this is easy. It's not easy to stand firm. I received a text this week from an Indian brother, and I just loved the, it's more, because of his eloquence, just a very simple statement became a little bit more profound to me. He said, let God's will be done. I'm trying my level best to keep myself clean and pure. My level best. <clears throat> That's what it means to stand firm. Standing firm means you consciously do something different than what you had previously been doing with your stance. You, you make an adjustment. Um, again, if you travel through airports, you know, like if you're in Atlanta, your heart's failing, you gotta go from concourse A to concourse D. You know, you're gonna travel on that little tram, and when the doors open, you hop in. And if you travel a lot, the first thing you're gonna do is either grab a pole or grab a leather strap or grab somebody who's doing that. <laughs> but ever so often you'll see a tough guy who goes, you know, I don't need to grab anything. And they're the ones who fall. Stand firm means I'm going to alter my stance because of the coming temptation. I left the office late Thursday night and decided to pick up some health food at Sugar and Spice. And um, it was very, it was providential that I was there because a brother from our midst had texted me earlier that day and said, I got really a pretty cool story of how God's moving in my life. Like share it with you. And I didn't get around to being able to connect with him. But there he was r- right in the middle of Sugar and Spice parking lot. Such a blessing. So I was, so well, tell me what's on your mind. And he said, well, you know, after Andrew preached last Sunday, he said, I was so moved by the fact when, when he just read the scripture, we have everything we need, everything we need for life and godliness. All the resources are there. He said, I'm just not availing myself to those resources. He said, so I've rededicated myself to Bible reading, and, and he says, I'm going to st- start attending the, the men's Bible study. If you don't know that, we have one on Wednesday morning here in the lobby, one Thursday, and it's there's just a great group of guys. He said, I need uh, men coming closer to my life to know me and that I would know them. Again, Elizabeth Elliot quote is, just perfect for why he would say that I love how she says it. not many of us are much good at being Christians all by ourselves so he said I want to come back and you just really get involved with men and what I really loved is he, he, he told his boss he said I I'm going to start taking Wednesdays off a day of renewal and Sabbath for my soul he told me, he said, Richard, I really can't financially afford to do that. Spiritually, I can't afford not to do that. And he said this week was, as soon as he began his journey, it was, it was, he was met with tremendous amount of oppression. I don't know if you've ever really thought about making an adjustment in your life, changing your stance, getting out of a habit, but it's, it starts pretty hard. And so he, um, when he really began to feel oppressed midweek, He told a co-worker man I'm really getting beat up by my renewed commitment to the Lord and his co-worker not great grammar but excellent theology said brother you should have known this was coming. (laughs) So he's right attacks are coming. Stand firm. What ways are we going to be attacked? I, I could mention a bunch of them but I just want to mention two because the word stand firm is used in the verse and It's therefore I'm not departing too much from my original text. Two ways we're going to need to stand firm because two ways we're going to be attacked. Corporately first and then individually. Number one, our unity in the church will be attacked. Paul writing to the Roman province of Philippi, the church there, he says, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together, as one for the faith of the gospel. Now Paul's writing this to his favorite church. It's a good church. Not so much with Corinth. They liked all the dark sins. They liked the class A sins. Corinth was hard. Philippi was easy. They great financially supported. They really but they were struggling with unity. So One of the ways that we as a church, as we grow, will be needing to stand firm is to stand together in unity. That means when you as a believer hear something that sounds disunifying, that with a tongue of grace, you speak and bring resolution so that that root will not grow. It's critical enough that it was included in the Bible. Stand firm for Unity, to protect each other as your brothers and sisters. Secondly, your desire for God's purpose will be attacked. Again, the word stand firm being in there. Ap- uh, Apophros, don't know a lot about him other than really just a couple verses, is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in the will of God. The only thing we really know him for is he brought a gift to the apostle Paul and he got so sick and bringing the gift he almost died. And then he was a great man of prayer. And here, what was he praying for? He's praying for you, praying for the church to know and do the will of God. The will of God is the most priceless commodity in life. It's the blueprint that God wrote for you when you were a baby or before you were born. It's, It's what you're designed to do. It's why you're here on earth. It's nothing matters in life but the will of God. I mean, to miss the will of God, to miss the purpose for your life, is to miss life. Lisa and I were eating, last week we were on vacation, and we were eating uh, one evening at a restaurant called Drunken Jack's, not because of what we were doing there, it's just the name of the restaurant, and in Merle's Inlet, we like it. The Hush Puppies, (laughs) I'm sticking to that. We love Drunken Jacks. And, but next door, I was intrigued. I was talking to our, our waitress, and she said, the restaurant next door closed down the night before, during supper. They gave out a fish. I'm thinking, you're a restaurant. You're at the ocean. <laughs> That's what you do. Where you're not expecting people. This is like the will of God. It's what you do in life is the will of God. Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters for a restaurant at the ocean than to have fish. Nothing matters for a believer than to say, every morning I'm waking up to do the will of God. The banner over everything is that. And you'd be surprised at how Satan attacks that. And a lot of times it's not for something evil, just for something easier. Many believers settle for good enough instead of God's will. And again, let me apply this to the role of the father in a house. A, a, a biblical dad, biblical manhood, a, a father, this is what he thinks about. This is what he prays for. I don't have it up there, but don't you remember when First John said, I have no greater joy than to know my children are walking in truth? I mean, that, that's really what dads think about. They're really not paramount though important is my son keeping his eye on the ball is my son keeping his eye on Jesus it's what dads think about talk about that there's nothing more important than knowing and doing the will of God so how can I prepare to stand firm when everything else is going to be tempting me to waver and to stumble Paul answers that in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. I love this particular reference to the Scripture, to the Bible, because it wasn't finished yet. Paul was writing it. So he was writing portions of the New Testament that I'm preaching from today, but they hadn't all been collected. Different churches had them, and they were later Gathered into one New Testament Bible. But here he just said, hey, the portion of the Bible that you got, that's your life. That's your life. That's the only way you can stand firm. And I know that, I don't know what you're dealing with this morning, but I know that if you have departed from God, I also know you have departed from Scripture. You can't stand to read it. It bothers you. And plus, you don't have a heart for it. That's what sin does. Sin just numbs you to the delight of reading the Bible. I know in my own life, you know, just one or two days of not really reading it, I begin to feel it. It's the thing that connects you to the mind of God. is the is is the word of is the word of God. And if you're not being influenced by His mind, you will be influenced by all the influences around you, other voices, a thousand other voices. Number three, be men of courage. I told you this is the easiest sermon I'll ever preach. Easiest outline. Number three is right there. Be men of courage. That's my third point, or literally, which is my sermon title: Act like a man. Take responsibility. Fulfill your duty, even when it's hard. Even when you are afraid. Do what is right and don't wait for someone else to do what is right. You. Be men of courage. You know, men are supposed to be leaders. There's just no doubt about it. And everything works a lot better. It's the design when they are leading well. Leading biblically. And I think the hardest, one of the hardest places to do it is in the family. For a man, I mean, I've been married 38 years and I still... Have to exercise a little willpower to say, least let's pray. And I mean these are little prayers, these are short prayers, but it just is like, all oh, right, do it. <laughs> and then it so you know you got a willpower. It's like it, it, and I think it's okay because I think that's how you know you're being resisted. I think that's that makes it okay. And then another reason that it's it's hard to lead in in, in the in the house is Not everybody loves for you to lead, like your children. Like, let's hurry up with this devotion. And then it's hard to lead in the house, because they know you. (laughs) Lisa and I got in a fight last night over a cobweb. Anna was coming to visit, we had her place already, and we missed a cobweb, and there were some of those little, those little white spatter things where they're getting ready to hatch, get <laughs> hanging out like three or four of them. I'm like, oh, I saw you walk in the house out there three times this week, thought you had it. She said, I had a little bit more on my mind this week, if you noticed, and she did have a busy week. So, after 15 minutes of pride, I apologize for accusing her of being a cobweb overlooker. (laughs) And I went out and cleaned it and cleaned the other parts of the house, which I I should have. I just just don't notice things sometimes, all the time. (laughs) So, Paul is saying, lead. Literally, the word courage here means be brave be brave. And not, I just share this quote with you. You'll never be a brave person if you're more concerned with outcomes than obedience. It's what really stops most people from doing the right thing. How's this going to work out? It's, biblical leadership says, I'm going to do it because it's right. The only thing that prompts a man to do brave things and hard things is he's focused on God more than himself. That's how you do that. You just my reputation, doesn't matter. God's honor is what matters. This is what Paul is really saying here. Think about the honor of God. This is what he's really saying. Be men of courage. Be brave. Think about God's honor. Don't think about yourself because that's childish. It's childish to think about yourself. A child can do that. It's okay for a child to be childish or childlike. I went to get an eye checkup um, about three weeks ago, and uh, the doctor said, hey, you use progressive lens on your glasses. Would you like to try some contacts with progressive lens? You know, you look through different parts, and you see different distances. I said, well, the last time I did that, I said, it sort of made me dizzy, headachy. I said, I sort of wimped out, and sort of was a baby about the whole thing, and I quit. I said, has the technology changed? He said, no, the technology has not changed, but how about you change and not be a baby? (laughs) So, you know, so lo and behold, it's like a, he said, just stick with it a little bit longer than the two minutes you did last time. So I'm really enjoying life uh, with uh, out glasses and uh, basically what the, doctor told me is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13. When I was a child, (laughs) I taught like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. This is what Paul is saying. Get past those things that used to trip you up. Grow up. Stop doing the things you used to do. Number four, be strong. Again, easy outline. The command is obviously given to somebody who doesn't feel strong. If you've never noticed that when Paul issues commands in the Bible or the Bible, anytime. The strong commands are always given to people who don't feel strong. That's the purpose. is reminding you that you are stronger than you think in the Lord. This is a person who is frightened that they're not strong enough to do what God's calling them to do. That's why you get the be strong commands. they a person who gets this command is, is, is in danger of being overwhelmed. I cannot live this Christian life. At this point, when you read something like that, it almost seems unfair to tell a weak person to be strong. But if somebody doesn't tell you that, you're never going to do it. It's raising the bar. There's more strength than you know, is what Paul is saying. But it's not even, what makes it good here, it's not an active verb. It's not a command, you be strong. It's a passive verb, which means let God strengthen you. That's literally what it reads. Be strong is let God strengthen you. Put yourself under the waterfall of his strength, as Paul said in Ephesians 3.16. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so the command here is not to conjure up strength but to not withdraw from the waterfall the strength is there if you would keep coming and coming and coming back to God coming back to church coming back to the Bible coming back to your prayer partner who's heard your confession 10,000 times confess again Draw near to the supernatural strength of God. Bring your weary body, weary mind. Don't forfeit the strength that the Holy Spirit has for you. He has strength for you. Don't believe the lie that you cannot make it. That's a lie. Life on earth is hard. Life on earth is painful. And it even gets harder when you attempt to live a life for God. But God will never abandon the man. Who tries to follow Jesus? Ever. I love how Spurgeon says it. Child of God, you cost Christ too much for him to forget you. The strength is there. The lie says it's not. God will let you hurt. He's going to let you ache. He's going to let you be weak and confused. But he is always working for your best and for your joy. And the man of God must cling to that at all times. Nobody shows this more of what it means to be strengthened by God when it looks like it was impossible than Josiah Henson. He was born uh, in Port Tobacco, Maryland in 1789, born into slavery. And he remained bound by that system for 41 years. His mother, Celia, He and his mother Celia were eventually, they eventually became the property of an alcoholic gambler uh, named Isaac Riley, who lived about 12 miles from Washington, D.C. Henson had great physical strength and great business aptitude, and so he was in charge of selling all the produce on the farm in D.C. So he met lots of entrepreneurs that developed his business skills made many context of how to run a business right. A few miles from uh, the plantation where he worked uh, in Georgetown, which is northwest D.C., um, lived John uh, McKinney. John McKinney was a baker who despised slavery and only, used, only used labor that he paid for, and that came voluntarily. One day in 1807, Celia Henson, Josiah's mother, learned that John McKinney was preaching four miles from the plantation in a little church in Newport Mill. And she longed for her spiritually numb son, Josiah, to know God. And so she said, I want you to go hear him preach. He walked the distance through the forest path, got to the door of the church, and was not allowed to enter because he was a black man. But by the grace of God, he stayed. And on the outside of that doorway, he listened. He had never heard a sermon before in his life. That morning, McKinney preached on the matchless character of Jesus Christ, a man who would give his life for his enemies mckinney asked this question during the sermon what kind of man dies for his enemies sacrifices himself for others the text came from hebrews 2 9 jesus suffered death so that by the grace of god he might taste death for everyone And he worked that word word everyone throughout that message. What does it mean that Jesus died for everyone? It means he died for everyone. Every man, every woman, every child. This is how McKinney said it that day. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, tasted death for every man, for the high, for the low, for the rich, for the poor. For the bond, the free, the negro in his chains, the man in gold and diamonds, Jesus died for every man. Hebrews 2.9 was the first Bible verse that Josiah Henson ever heard in church. And he said, when I heard it, my soul that day was transported from earth to heaven with delicious joy. He got saved, gave his life to Christ, and within two years he had become a regular preacher in the slave community. Although many of the services, the worship services, were held in secret, all the preaching and singing provided slaves with hope that God saw their misery and would one day make all things right. Despite the fact that Henson could never read or write, he was a compelling preacher. He memorized Bible verses every time he heard somebody use them. He had an extraordinary wit, combined it with a spiritual gift of eloquence, and he was overly transparent about his own sinfulness and need for a Savior. Over the next few years, Henson would be mentored by a leader in the Methodist church, a white man who saw so much potential in him, that he submitted his name for ordination and he became a preacher, an ordained minister in the Methodist church. He preached on the farms that Raleigh, his owner, had throughout the Virginia, Maryland area. Made small amounts of money from some of these speaking engagements. And when he got $350, he approached Raleigh and said, may I buy my freedom? Riley took the money and stole it and put him on a ship to sell him in New Orleans. And he put his son in charge of the transaction in in that city. So they begin their journey down the Mississippi and at some point along the journey, Henson decided that he would kill his master's son and the crew, sink the ship, And uh, flee to the north. So one night he gathered an axe, he grabbed an axe, entered the cabin where everybody was sleeping, found the bunk of his master's son, raised the axe to strike the fatal blow, and at that point heard the voice of God saying, What? Commit murder and you are a Christian? He lowered the axe and would later write in his autobiography. I was going to go kill a young man who had done nothing to injure me. He simply obeyed the commands of his father that he could not resist. I shrunk back. I laid down the axe, crept up on the deck again, and thanked God as I have every day since that I did not commit murder. Now, what would prompt a man like Josiah Henson to not murder when he had the power to do so because he was a true man a true man which brings us to the fifth quality that I read earlier when we started and do everything in love as we've said before when we come to the word everything in scripture there's not a whole lot of ways to mess it up I can't tell you it means anything different in Greek than it does in English, everything pretty much means everything. Panta. Everything you do is to reveal the love of Jesus Christ. Love means that every decision you make, you consider the outcome, will it bring joy to people in my life? That's what it means to love. Will my decision, will the consequences of my decision bring joy to the people in my life? When your heart departs from God, the first thing that goes is a genuine love for others. Love for yourself will become the driving force of your life. Josiah Henson knew he did not have the right to take the life of his master's son because it was not the loving thing to do. And God blessed him for it. His son, the Riley's son, had contracted malaria. The ship had to turn around, took him back to the D.C. area, which allowed Josiah Henson to develop a better plan involving no violence, a plan to escape. So one night in 1830, Josiah Henson, along with his wife Charlotte and their four children, two of them strapped by a knapsack to his back made the 600 mile journey to canada where they began to experience freedom for the first time in their life they went to a place which was at that time a a place for refugees for slaves it was called dawn uh, canada now dresden ontario and there he used his business skills to teach all of the workers there how to develop and fabricate high quality black walnut lumber. Don't know anything about that, just evidently it was the deal, the thing. It was so noticed by him that he was invited to the Crystal Palace in London, England, to attend the World's Fair and show his lumber. And he did. He won a bronze medal for his craftsmanship. The notoriety gained him a meeting with the Archbishop of Canterbury, the second highest person in the British Empire. Impressed by Henson's eloquence, the Archbishop of Canterbury asked, at what university did you graduate? Henson replied, I graduated at the University of Adversity. Throughout his life, Henson continued to preach the gospel, continued to develop jobs for slaves who had been freed, that were coming into Canada. As a matter of fact, he provided so much financial support so that slaves could rebuild their lives that he went in debt. In order to pay off the debt in 1876, at the age of 87, he ventured out on a 100-city tour of the british isles london england scotland he would meet queen victoria and that would issue another invitation to return to washington dc and meet rutherford hayes in the white house though his permanent residence was in canada henson took many opportunities to cross the border back into the states And to rescue, eventually, through the Underground Railroad, the human network of uh, men and women who helped slaves escape. He rescued 118 men and women in his lifetime. Until his death at age 93. Where he was continued to preach and fundraise. When the New York Times... Please hear what I just said. When the New York Times reported his death in 1883, one eulogy summarizes his life like this. We are proud to state as our firm belief that he was a Christian in the full sense of the term, a minister properly and a thorough gentleman. He was a man. That's what New York Times would say. He was a true man. For much of his life, Josiah Henson was not treated like a man. And yet he showed through the power of Jesus Christ what a man looks like that's been reborn. His autobiography was published in 1853 and it became the inspiration for Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. That was the best-selling book in the 19th century apart from the Bible. And it is a thing that raised the issue and awareness of slavery to a level that could only be solved by the Civil War. Her book, based on his autobiography, led to freedom and led to Lincoln... Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. When Abraham Lincoln met Harriet Beecher Stowe, he said, So you're the little woman who started the big war. And it's true, and she always gave credit to Josiah Henson's life as a man, inspired her to write. I'm sure if Josiah Henson were here today, he would just tell you one thing. Look to Christ. There is no other answer for your bitterness and your addictions and your guilt. Look to Christ and be saved and be born again. He didn't do that till he was 18 years old. 17 years. Life really wasted. And then he heard of the price that had been paid 2,000 years ago and he was saved. And maybe you're like that today. You've lived what? 18 years? 38. 58. 78 years. You've not heard about the sacrifice that was made 2,000 years ago for all of these years. You've not known and done the will of God. Your purpose for life has not been met and it can be today because you hear the news. Christ died for every man, every woman, every child. You know, I don't know if you heard this week, but um, the president declared Juneteenth as a federal holiday. I didn't know what Juneteenth was until a couple years ago. It's Just such a beautiful, glorious day. Actually, specifically, it is June 19th, but it falls on different days. It's called June 19th. But it's June 19th of um, 1865. Um, A Union soldier by the name of Gordon Granger rode into Galveston, Texas to declare to that city into that state, all the slaves were free and had been for two years, and they didn't know it. That's why Juneteenth is so cool. He had the privilege of riding on a horse into a town and saying, you're free. It happened two years ago, but you didn't know. I don't know of a greater metaphor than what the church is called to do in the worldwide enterprise of missions. We ride on airplanes and cars and our feet and through prayer and we go to all parts of the world to people who don't know what happened 2,000 years ago and we say you're free. Jesus Christ died on the cross so you could be free. Every sin, every word, every thought, every deed, every lust, every disappointment that you created, every pain that came from your life and hurt somebody else, you're free. Divine blood has been shed for you. You're free. And if we don't do that, I don't want to do church. I want to spend the rest of my life like that Union General Gordon Granger on that horse with the greatest message in the world telling lost people you can be saved telling blind people you can see telling bitter people you can forgive telling the downcast there's hope forevermore would you Today, hear the message of Hebrews 2.9. For yourself, Jesus died for everyone. And would you make it the goal of your life to spend the rest of your life telling the world through Christ they can be free. Let's pray. Our Father, first and foremost, always, we look at Jesus and marvel he is the definition of love he did not look out for his own comfort he did not run from sacrifice but he loved us enough to purchase our freedom the price was high the cost was Divine blood, Jesus, you paid it. You are the supreme man, the God man. Laid down all your privileges as God and took up all the infirmities of man and you did it because you are a perfect man and we adore you son of god son of man we adore you we we bring our vulnerabilities to you our failures to you our fears to you we lay down our guilt Our shame, our hopelessness, laid at the cross beneath the waterfall of infinite love, blood purchased grace, infinite mercy. O God, who delights in restoring the sinner, forgiving the rebel turning enemies into friends we come to you son of God son of man and say save us strengthen us we're weak strengthen us strengthen us to know you to love you A Father now For all the ways that you could use this church to declare to this world, to this city, to the state, to this nation, across the Atlantic and Pacific, to islands, to continents, to sprawling urban areas, and to small secluded villages, anyway, homes, offices universities, industry, any way would you use this church to declare the message of freedom, freedom through Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen.